1: She flies Golden sails across the sky Close enough to touch But
0: careful if you try Welcome to Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. All this week, we've been revisiting some of our favorite conversations from Political Rewind and my earlier GPB radio show, Two Way Street. We'll get back to talking about political headlines soon enough. But as we head into the New Year's weekend, I thought it would be fun to share a show with one of my favorite musical guests, the great singer-songwriter Jimmy Webb. Webb is one of the single most prolific and highly honored songwriters in popular music. He won his first Grammy in 1967. He was the youngest person ever inducted in the Songwriters Hall of Fame, and Rolling Stone named him one of the 50 greatest songwriters of all times. You probably know many of his songs. Wichita Lineman, Up, Up and Away, By the Time I Get to Phoenix, Galveston, MacArthur Park, The Moon's a Harsh Mistress, and many, many more. Jimmy Webb continues to tour, even at the age of 75. And while his voice isn't what it used to be, Rolling Stone said it was like an old Mustang headed through treacherous, yet often gorgeous landscapes. Webb visited with us back in 2018. he just released his memoir called The Cake and the Rain, And the week that we saw him, he was getting set to play at Eddie's Attic, a venue in Decatur that seats just 100 people. This is a man who could fill concert halls with a couple of thousand people, but he loved the small venue and the intimacy of Eddie's Attic, and I have to tell you, it was a thrill to see him play there. We began our conversation with Jimmy telling the story of how he started playing the piano.
1: I really got my musical training in the Southern Baptist Church. My father was a minister, and it was- really my mother's incentive and her iron will and sometimes you know her uh, you know anger that kept me at the piano every day uh from the age of six until she died. And she died when I was sixteen she was thirty six but she was really the author of all this because. You know, we had a contract, you know, it's fashionable in this day and age for parents to have contracts with their children, and my contract with my mom was that if I played the piano every day for 30 minutes, she wouldn't hit me with a stick, so <laughs> it seemed to work out pretty well, and when I was 12 years old, I was, um she thought I had achieved the heights. I was as high as you could go, I was on the organ bench at the First Baptist Church, and as far as she was concerned, her mission was
0: was completed. When you were uh, young, uh, there are two stories in the book that I thought were worth talking about. You grew up in Elk City, Oklahoma is the name of the town, right? Is that right? Yes. Yeah. El- elk
1: City, Oklahoma. I couldn't wait to get out of that one elk town.
0: But you tell a story about a couple of musical influences that I think are worth exploring a bit. You talked about one day being out on a on, I think, a tractor, a plow of some sort. And you were you had the radio, a little, I assume, transistor radio. Yes. And you heard a song. You turn around, look at me, right? On Crest Records, yes,
1: uh, by a fellow that I'd never heard of named Glenn Campbell. Yeah.
0: Yeah. The song itself, it's, there is someone, right, walking beside beside me. Beside
1: me, turn around, look at me. There is someone walking behind you. Turn around, look at at me. me. It's a beautiful song. Yeah, it's really pretty. There is someone walking behind you.
0: Said to yourself, dear God, please allow me to someday write a song this wonderful, and to have it performed by somebody like this guy who I'd never heard before.
1: Yeah, I was down. I was down on my knees by my bed most nights, saying, "You know, please, Lord, let me. You know, this is something I want to do." And it was really kind of my secret because my father, there was no way he was gonna uh, he was gonna encourage me to be to go into the evil world of entertainment secular music secular secular music music, yeah yeah because uh, the gift that I had been given in his view was a gift from God and it should be used you know in in the church and that seemed reasonable in a certain way but at the same time I was incredibly interested in Bert Bacharach and Hal David and And some some of the other and when uh, when the Beatles came along, uh, John Lennon and Paul McCartney and uh, John Hartford who had written "Gentle on My Mind," all these people were. were, It was a constant reminder to me that there was a whole world. There was a whole thing going on.
0: There was another song when you were a kid that really probably a little older, I, I would guess, but it also lured you in. Um, uh, a Beach Boys song in my room you said you heard it played on a radio and at some distance and just kind of followed the sound when we,
1: when we moved to California my father moved he, us from Oklahoma to California uh, in the suburb of San Bernardino or Burdue, <laughs> as we call it um, and we settled in this kind of uh, what seemed at the time a very lush neighborhood lots of green lots of sprinklers lots of landscaping Really, it was just post-war, you know, G.I. loan housing, but the flowers were beautiful and the palm trees were beautiful. That particular summer, that was the summer of 1962, and... uh, I believe that's right, 62 or 63, anyway, um, all the windows in the neighborhood were open, all the sprinklers were on, sh- 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 what Joni Mitchell called the hissing of summer yep. lawns, um, and wafting from house to house were Beach Boy songs. I mean, it was, it was literally just part of the air that you, that you would breathe there including the scent of the orange blossoms coming off of the groves and everything. It was just a little moment of magic where I I asked my next-door neighbor who was out back washing his van over over our back fence, washing his van, and he had a couple of surfboards up on top of them. And I asked him, I said, hey, I said, "Uh, what are those things up on your car, you know? And he said... (laughs) dude, he said, those are surfboards, you know.
0: Welcome to said, Southern California, <laughs> <yeah>. Jimmy.
1: <laughs> and he said, uh, and I said, well, what, and what's that record you keep playing? He just said, dude, those <laughs> you don't know the Beach Boys? And I said, well, I, I've, heard, I've heard like a couple of records. He said, well, come to my room. He says, I've got all their albums. So I went right in there and and heard in my room, and Surfer Girl, and this is a theory that I've heard that I that I happen to agree with is that that the sound really originated with the with the, with the group the the four freshmen, and then there was another similar group called the Letterman, and the Beach Boys were like that sort of uh, collegiate quartet sound. But it had the influence of, of the surfing movement
0: behind it. But and also, like you... And it had Brian. It, that was what I was <laughs> going to say. Like you, it, Brian Wilson and you, it strikes me, have some strong similarities in that you can take uh, fairly traditional pop popular music and expand on it. Uh, turn it into a creative force that is beyond what it started out as. And you're very similar in that way, I think. Is that a fair statement? Well, um, listen, that's a, that's an
1: extreme compliment. But uh, Brian and I have always been good friends. And uh, I can remember him coming to my— when I lived in California in Encino, in, you know, I, I celebrated my 30th birthday and I invited Brian and I thought— he'll never come he'll never leave his house and and come all the way out here to the valley to see me and he showed up um in a bathrobe and came in <laughs> and gave me a bottle of champagne
0: you know my my i think it um you were writing songs, secular music, the kind of music your father really didn't want you to write yeah. uh, by the time you were a teenager. It's interesting to me that one of the songs I think you wrote as a teenager, but d- it didn't become, didn't surface in a big way until many, many years later, was a song that Art Garfunkel recorded, right? It
1: it was, it was a little song uh, called, um, uh, Someone Else, and, um. Uh... Already got interested in it. I and I don't know how, how these things happen, but I was I was fiddling around with it and singing it. And uh, he said, "What's that?" And I said, "Oh, I, that's the very that's the first song I ever wrote." And he said, "Really?" And I said, "He said when?" And I said, "Well, it was in Oklahoma City. I was 13 years old." He said. I love it. He says, I want to cut it. I said, oh, no, (laughs) please say say it's not true. He said, yeah, I really love it. And I, I said, well, Okay. Uh, you know, I mean, it really it sort of bothered me because I
0: thought, well, this is really a naive song. Yeah, know? but this is post Simon and Garfunkel, so yeah. it's many years later, yeah. and that song surfaces and he chooses to.
1: Yeah, it. he chose it, and uh, I said, all I ask is that you put 1957 in parentheses after it. <laughs> Did you really? This the year I wrote it. <laughs> yeah. There's always no.
0: Another song you wrote as a teenager is a song that came to you. The lyrics certainly came to you as you were driving down the highway in California, Southern California. Santa Ana Freeway. Santa Ana Freeway. Yeah. And um, a song started coming to you that has gone on to become one of the, certainly one of the biggest hits in your career. What was that song?
1: Well, um the the words and music sort of began to circulate in my brain as I'm driving down to meet with some of my fraternity brothers in Newport Beach. And it was this little, simple little verse thing. Um, this time we almost made the pieces fit, didn't we? And I kept driving, and then I came up with another line. This time we almost made some sense of it, didn't we, girl? And I'm just merrily going along, and, the first, and, and before I really know what I'm doing, I've got I've got a whole song, but I don't have any, pen, I don't have any paper, I don't have a pencil, and I'm in the middle of this horrific Southern California traffic, and the people are honking at me because I'm wandering from lane to lane, you know, because I'm <laughs> singing this song. Finally, I get down to my where my frat brothers were hanging out at this house in Newport Beach. And he just walked in and everybody said, Hi Jimmy. I didn't say a thing. I walked straight to the piano. <laughs> I sat down and I and I, I just sang, This time we almost made the pieces fit, didn't sang the whole thing, right? Wow sang it just like that, and they're all standing there sort of holding their beers looking like with their mouths <laughs> hanging open.
0: And that's one of the many iconic songs <laughs> that you've written. They've been recorded dozens and dozens of times, but I suspect that one of the most thrilling versions of this song was recorded by this guy who gave you credit as he sang it at Royal Albert Hall.
1: I think I know who you mean. This is Jimmy Webb one of his very quiet nice moments. This time we nearly made the pieces fit. He's, he's freely improvising. My I noticed there. that. <laughs> you know, he
0: would he would just sing whatever the heck
1: he wanted to sing.
0: Yeah, was that was all right with you? It was I okay imagine.
1: with me. I never complain. You know, I've seen young writers like really get irate because they go and they say, "Look, uh, I don't want you to change that." You know, uh, some inconsequential line. You know, v to to, to to of or, you know, arguing over like uh, many words or hyphenated words or whatever, and sometimes uh, I've seen them actually sabotage the recording session because it, it wasn't being done exactly the way they wanted it done. I never did
0: that in my life. We're going to take a break right now, but we'll be back in a moment with more of our encore presentation of my conversation with Jimmy Webb, which we recorded in the spring of 2018
1: the mountains and the pines and then the darkness fell and the moon's a harsh stress it's so hard I am a lineman for the county
0: And I drive the main roads We talked with Jimmy Webb in May of 2018. As we left off, we were discussing the earlier days of his career. These but were days before <laughs> you uh, were actually, for the most part, uh, you still were primarily a songwriter and hadn't, hadn't quite emerged yet as the singer you became. And one of the groups that you produced and recorded that I think is really fun to listen to is a group called The Contesses. Those were my girls. There's your girl. And yeah. one of the reasons I thought they were interesting is because you, you you were really enamored early on by the notion of combining strings with rock and roll or R&B or whatever. And the Contessas was an opportunity for you to do that on Absolutely. at least one song, right? Yeah.
1: Well, it was my first... I learned to orchestrate on the fly, really, in the studio. And this was my first orchestration it's all written in con- for concert instruments because I wasn't up to any transposition so I had bones flutes xylophone uh, and of course the string orchestra which were, they're all in concert keys and I didn't know what it was going to sound
0: like but it, here's what it sounds like <laughs> this is a song called this is where I came in Can you hear that all these years later?
1: Well, I, 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 I can remember the day. Uh, it, was, it was quite thrilling when the, the massed Orchestra came in on the chorus. I thought, my God, I can do this. You had to uh, conduct that orchestra, yes, having and, never and, done it before. And also, I'll tell you something else. The band was the wrecking crew. Hal Blaine was there. Uh, Joe Osborne,
0: Larry Nectal, all the guys, were Tommy Tedesco, they were all in there. One of the things that's, uh, I think, fascinating to think about with your career, because today we're, we think of you as a singer-songwriter. Back then, that was not an easy thing for you to become. That You were writing great music for a lot of different artists, but your early attempts to record them yourself were... There were some stumbling moments, yes?
1: Well, I, yes, I had a very difficult... Uh... Uh, you know in those days I plunged into things without much forethought or planning and so my first album I I had really I really cut with Freddie Tackett which was called Uh, it was called Words and Music let's listen Yeah, um, my my voice was a little thin for the radio, and I, and if I and if I when I hear that disc, all I hear is, is is how wide open and vulnerable it was, and if you stacked it up against a Beatles track, the Beatles track would roll over that like a like a tank over a over a toad frog, <laughs> because they had so much their their bass sound was so massive. The mid-range, they built up with overdubs mm-hmm. and all this stuff. And that's all the stuff that I don't hear on my
0: record. Well, what now I know you can look back on that and be somewhat uh, relaxed about it. But that was very traumatic for you back then, trying to break through as an artist performing his own music.
1: My second album came <laughs> out and so on I, and Stereo Review Magazine because I learned quick they gave me their award for album of the year. And uh, I had critics, uh, John Landau said in Rolling Stone magazine that Words and Music was, quote, one of the great undiscovered pop masterpieces of 1971, unquote. Um, So um, there was, there were, I had ironically because i thought the critics were the enemy but it turned out the critics were my best friends they really sort of appreciated the records and what i was doing it was the public <laughs> damn them! <laughs> it was the it was the damn public that was
0: the problem this is a good time to introduce if it's all right with you yeah. who is susan horton
1: well susie was my high school sweetheart you know uh there's really not that much to tell. It was it was it was a, a an unrequited
0: love affair. She was the great love of your life when you were well, young. Yeah, is that I was, fair to when say? When I was young. Yeah. yeah, that's what I mean. And the reason I bring her up now is that there were many songs that you wrote in those days that were to some extent inspired by her, including one I believe where you had. She had broken your heart again. We've all gone through it in in our young lives. And you thought to yourself, why am I in California? I might as well go back to Oklahoma. And you thought about, well, what would that be like, driving back from California to Oklahoma? And this song emerged
1: By the time I make Oklahoma, she'll be sleeping. She'll turn softly name out low. and she'll cry just to think I'd really leave her for time and time I've
0: tried one of the great great popular songs. Well
1: thank you so much, thank you. Um I I I was very very fortunate that my boss Johnny Rivers uh, Johnny Rivers who ran Soul City Music had made a recording with Glenn Campbell on Mercury Records in the late 50s and he remembered Glenn as a really good guy and when he signed me he heard by the time I get to Phoenix and he recorded it immediately at the time, he had a num- Johnny had a number one record called Poor Side of Town, which yes. is a lovely record. He wrote that. He called up Al DeLore, who was Glenn's producer, and said, I've got a song over here for you that's gonna, you know, that's gonna change Glenn's life. And Al came over and he he played it off of his test pressing. And this is the true story. Uh, and Al looked at him and said, I don't get it. He said, why are you playing this song for us? He said, you know it's a hit. And Johnny said, Al, you can only have one number one record at a time. And
0: the truth is, he did it for me, and he did it for Glenn. And here it was... This voice that you had heard as a young boy driving in the field. Yeah.
1: Oh I my mean, gosh. That's kind of. There were times when I I actually had out of body experiences because I didn't believe what was happening
0: to me. Here's what what's uh, so Glenn Campbell records by the time I get to Phoenix, and then he comes back to you, Jimmy. I want a song about an I need another city song, right? <laughs> Yeah, can you write me a song
1: about a town? You know. I said, "Well, I said, could I make it geographical?" Oh no, he said. Well, I said, "I don't know about a town song." He said, "Well, can you make it geographical?" And I said, "Well, let me think about that. I think I might be able to do it."
0: So you write the song, uh-huh. and you call Glenn Campbell up, say, "Can you come on over? I've got this song. Let's try it out." And you're apologetic because you say to him, I'm sorry, but we don't. Ha- I don't have a third verse for this song. Yeah. But what happened?
1: <laughs> well, I met him a couple of weeks. Well, I sent it over saying this is unfinished, you know, um, because they kept bothering me. They called me 10 times that day. So I finally sent it over and said, well, I don't think this is done. Love, Jimmy. You know, sent it over And a a couple of weeks went by. I didn't hear from them. I didn't hear from Glenn. I I ran into him somewhere. I, I can't honestly remember. And he, I said, oh, I guess you guys didn't like that Wichita lineman song. And Glenn looked at me like, are you crazy? He looked at me and he said, we cut that. And I said, you cut it and he said yeah and i said but it wasn't finished and he
0: said it is now he wrote a really really moving guitar solo that that uh uh, served as the third verse yes he tuned his guitar way down neutral what do you call the kind of tuning well
1: you know it's it's um you you detune it you know you you get
0: a a much lower you get a bass sound out of a regular guitar that became the third verse but something else interesting happened uh when you i I think you were at your house uh you had an an an, an organ uh or an organ-like instrument in the house and it suddenly occurred to you as you were sitting there It was a church organ it was an actual church organ and when we listen to the song we're going to hear that kind of almost otherworldly, sounds like a satellite out in space that we hear, right? You know
1: why that's interesting? It's because we didn't have synthesizers. I am a lineman for the county And
0: I drive the main road Searching in the sun for another Billy Joel is a good friend of yours. I yes. Think. And um, you've said that Billy Joel's understanding of that song was so profound to you that it almost made you cry.
1: Yeah, he said that. He he actually, at the Songwriters Hall of Fame one year, he really put me through the mill. He he deconstructed uh, Wichita Lineman in front of this whole group of industry people. And he said... Well, you get to this line, you know, and it says, "I need you more than want you." He says, "Wow!" He says, "You know, that almost sounds like a diss." You know, and everybody like laughed hysterically. And he said, "But then, but then," he says, "He says, and I want you for uh, all time." He, he said, says, "Yeah." He says, he "I says, need
0: you more than want you." What does that mean? Yeah.
1: But he <laughs> and he "But he says, uh, and I want you for all time." He says. You may have to blip this out. Jesus Christ, he really (laughs) loves her. (laughs) You know, and um, he said that night, he said, to me, Wichita lineman is emblematic of an ordinary man thinking extraordinary thoughts, and that's when the tears started rolling down my face because I thought, he really gets it, you know, and it was... Because you, because uh, I spend a lot of time exp- trying to explain my songs, you know, and and in that case, he did it for me.
0: The Wichita lineman is still on the line. It's just. So haunting. Thank, uh, thank you. you for writing it. Oh. <laughs> We've talked about Up, Up, and Away a little bit here and there, uh, but it, you went to work for The Fifth Dimension, essentially, and I have to tell you, I had not heard Up, Up, and Away for a long, long time until I started preparing to have you here, and I'd forgotten what a great song it is, and, and I forgot, I'd, I'd had it pigeonholed in the way that a lot of people you were worried when it first came out might pigeonhole it uh-huh. i wasn't quite sure what to make of it but i i listened uh, let's just listen to a little of up up and away and then talk about it we'll
1: It's beautiful. What I what I hear is I hear the the wrecking crew. I I hear those guys functioning at, at on a very 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 high level. If you hear the little ripples in the acoustic guitar from Al Casey,
0: and there's an elegance to the machinery of the music. You and I are probably about the same age. So I was um, I was right there for that song, and I started hearing it come on the radio. And as as you've uh, alluded to in the book uh what was fascinating about it is nobody second guessed it nobody said gee why are they playing this coming out of a turtle song or a, or a rolling stone song it it worked people well, a- a- embraced it top 40 was an
1: accommodating medium and you would hear a motown record then you would hear the weavers then you would hear maybe uh Otis Redding, then you, then then you might hear Johnny Rivers, uh, the Mamas and Papas, yeah. and it was in that way a completely inclusive uh, list of songs. It, it's only it's only lately that we've begun to really create discrete. Radio stations that only play the music that the people want to hear.
0: Yeah, and I suppose that's the digital culture we it can is, focus. But
1: it's unfortunate. Yeah, because in those days we we were we were uh, less, uh, to put it bluntly, you know, white kids were exposed to black music, yeah. black kids were exposed to white music. It was very, to me, I think, a a healing and a, and a coming together, which you sort of saw manifested. In the '60s, and in the, in at Monterey and at the Flower, and the, in the peace movement, there was there was a lot of togetherness, there was a lot of love, and a lot of inclusiveness, and Top Forty was simply a mirror of that. And so, really, uh, up up and away was, I would say, one of the most unlikely
0: records. But it was a big big hit. Because a it lot worked. of
1: people said that sounds like a Broadway show yeah. too, you know? Yeah,
0: yeah, but. It went right up the charts. Hey, while we're talking about songs like "Up, Up and Away" or "Wichita Lyman, any of when you years later listen to uh, songs that you've written, do you think to yourself, "Gee, I wish I'd done this instead of that at this moment in the song. I wish I'd changed the chorus. I wish I'd done more with the verse." Does that that still happen? Sometimes
1: to you? I I wish I could rework the lyrics. You know, like I I, I was kind of I played fast and loose with the, with the rhymes. Sometimes I wasn't, uh, but then. There's another part of me that says, "Let well enough alone." That whatever, whatever you did, it was it was what you were supposed to do at that moment. Knowing what I know now, I'd go back and ruin the whole
0: thing. You <laughs> you, <know>? you don't <laughs> win sometimes at at a moment where you hear something that you're like, "Oh, I can't believe well, I, wrote I that," and I'm stuck with it. There
1: are times when I hear lyrics and I go, "Geez, I wish I'd have done that." Yeah. I wish I had a
0: chance to do that again. This is Political Rewind. Let's get back now to my conversation with the great singer songwriter Jimmy Webb, which we recorded in the spring of 2018. Let's talk Richard Harris. We've left uh, MacArthur Park uh, for the latter part of the conversation. You got to know him, um, you were invited to become a, uh, a contributor to a a benefit that was going to have scenes from shows and poetry and that's, sort of, and he directed it, right? Yeah, it was wonderful.
1: Uh, a pageant is what I would call it. Uh, and it was basically an anti-war message. It, uh, during, I would say the height of the unhappiness over uh, Vietnam. Uh, and it was a Hollywood night and there were some w- wonderful people there. Bob Mitchum was there. Gene Simmons, Walter Pigeon, um, Edward G. Robinson, which is a big thrill for yeah. me to meet him. Yeah. Right. And I was just there with the other musicians uh, playing. But uh, Richard took a shine to me, started calling me Jimmy Webb. Jimmy Webb. <laughs> He'd say, Ah, Jimmy Webb. He'd said, after rehearsal tonight, let's go out and he said, We'll he said, We'll have some black velvets. And I said and I would say, Well, I what's a black velvet? And he said,
0: Oh, you've never had one, eh?
1: He said, "Good." He says, "I'm good to teach you." you Going on
0: a bender with Richard Harris sounds like one of the most dangerous experiences you could possibly have. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know,
1: well, just being in, in his company uh, was was highly dangerous because he was he was very combative and uh, but at the same time being in his company
0: I think was one of the great privileges of my life because he was truly larger than life. The producer of the Association had come to you and talked to you about writing a big orchestral uh, uh, piece for them—a song for top forty radio.
1: And he had a—he he was producing an act called the Association, and I—he said, "Do you think you could do that?" And I said. Do I think I could do it? I mean, it was like, this was like my dream come true. Yeah, this
0: was bringing together what you'd started all those yeah. years ago with the contestants yeah. layering in uh, orchestrations. and.
1: Or I want, you know, the, the, the elements of rock, yeah. of, of orchestra, of, uh, and in my case, balladeering, which I still, I was still a traditional old school songwriter, but I wanted to put all this stuff together. So I wrote it, and I I, I mean, I won't go into some dramatic story about how how hard it
0: was. It took me about two or three days to do it. You wrote MacArthur (laughs) Park in two or three days, and the entire what, you think of it as a suite almost. I didn't do the arrangement.
1: I just... Oh, okay. You just wrote wrote the song. I later did the arrangement. Okay. The truth is that right right at one of the most dramatic parts of the song, where it's... It's going I I was wearing like very, very cheap jeans and I ripped the seat out of my jeans and, and it and it, and it sounded like I'll leave it up to your imagination what it sounded like. And it came at a very crucial moment in the in the sort of you know meeting. And the association collapsed into hysterics, and the songwriter in me went, "Well, that's that. They're
0: never going to cut. They're never
1: going to cut that song." And they and they didn't.
0: Yeah, I mean, at that point they were, they were a big hit. They were "Windy" was kind of their big big yeah, song. But yeah. boy, what a mistake! So MacArthur Park ends up going it, it, to Richard Harris. Well, it ends up as, at
1: the, on the bottom of my stack of songs because. Um, you know it's, it's it's a songwriter superstition you know if you play a song for somebody and they don't like it you have a tendency to just you know maybe put bear, go out in the backyard and bury it you know so it doesn't contaminate any of your other songs but I still had it around I had it in a stack I went over to London and played it for Richard I had played everything else and he said what's that then, Jimmy what and I got it out and um, spread it across the piano. It was like two great wings of a Boeing 747. And uh, I started trying to play it, and I got to the part that said, MacArthur Bark is melting in the dark, and he slapped the piano so hard. And I'm not going to do it right here because... Thank you. But uh, he slapped the piano, and he said, I will have that Jimmy Whip. I will make a hit out of that. And I'll be a pop star.
0: <laughs> to this day, you wrote that song in the late 60s, I imagine. It's now 2017, and I imagine there's not a week that goes by that somebody doesn't say, what the heck are the lyrics of that song all about, right? That's followed you forever.
1: Well, <clears throat>
0: yes. Yes, it has. <laughs>
1: and uh, I don't have an answer. It's like it's, it's like uh, uh, Van Dyke Park's, was being, like, raked over the coals by Mike Love one day because of uh, the lyrics to Surf's Up, you know, uh, columnated ruins domino, blah, 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 you know. And, And Mike Love was saying, what the hell does this mean anyway and how dare you write this? And... And Van Dyck Parks' uh, reply was, "I have no excuse, sir." <laughs>
0: <laughs> but everything that you allude to in the lyrics, I think, actually existed in some way. The, uh, there was no, a cake in the No, no, no. Well, there's in nothing the in the song no. that I didn't witness. I mean, That's I was, what I'm saying. Uh, I you, saw everything. Right. So and MacArthur... I just incorporated
1: it into the song, and 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 yet over the years, people have they they are they are. They seem to be genuinely bewildered by someone left the cake out in the rain. Who left the cake out in the rain? Why did they leave it out in the rain? Uh, and uh, so I've 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 written a small memoir called The Cake and the Rain, and in that book I explain exactly how the song and came out. And we'll
0: about. let people read it. We're we'll, we'll using put the that link. as a as a marketing tool. Oh, I get that.
1: Now. <laughs> <laughs> For us, girl, it ran one step ahead as we followed in the dance. Between the parted pages and were pressed in lost hot, fevered iron like a striped pair of pants.
0: Your songs have been sung by such great artists over the years, and you have become famous for these wonderful orchestrations uh, that you do. Um, But can I tell you what my favorite Jimmy Webb record is? Please. 10 Easy Pieces. Oh, thank you. And and here's why. Um, Because it's purely you. It is almost entirely you sitting at the piano playing gorgeous arrangements of your own songs. And for anybody who thought that somehow you couldn't be a singer, that record, which I think came out in the mid-'90s, right? Somewhere around there?
1: I actually had a partner on that record, Jack Daniels. (laughs) (laughs) Do you look at that record with pride? I'm very—you know what? It it actually turned my career around because I— the struggle was—I'll tell you what is really important about that record— I had never sung those songs, those hit songs before. And Freddie Mollen, he t- had to twist my arm to get me to sing by the time I get to Phoenix and worse the cat happen and all that. But it came, it was a kind of an acknowledgement, an owning of, yeah, you know, yes, he was my boyfriend, you know. Yes, I wrote these songs. I wrote all of these songs, you know, and uh, they're different. Some of them are different. They're not just rock and roll. They're this is what I this is what I've done.
0: Thank you so much, Jimmy Webb, for being here. It was a pleasure to have you. Thank you.
1: I still see her dark eyes glowing. She was 21 when I left care.
0: Stone. I still hear your sea waves crashing Jimmy Webb's memoir is called The Cake and the Rain in honor of those mystifying lyrics on his blockbuster hit record MacArthur Park By the way, while Richard Harris sang the song first in the years since an eclectic list of artists have recorded it too including Diana Ross and the Supremes Spring was nailed one step ahead As we in a dead. Outlaw country star Waylon Jennings Between the parted pages And we're pressed And love's hot fevered eye Like a striped pair of pants. Elvis Presley, Carmen McRae, The Four Tops, The Disco Fox Girls someone left cake house and dozens of others. But Webb will probably be remembered best for his long association with Glen Campbell, who died on August 8th of Alzheimer's disease. Even as Campbell's illness reached its final stages, his family released one last album two months before he died. Campbell had recorded it in 2013 when he was already largely incapacitated. Still, he rallied and made a record that featured 12 of his favorite songs, four of them by Jimmy Webb, including the title track of the record, Adios. Adios. We never really made it, baby. But we came pretty close. Webb had written that song back in the early 90s for Linda Ronstadt. When he heard the new version of Adios on Campbell's final album, he told Rolling Stone magazine that he and Campbell used to play the song all the time. He said, we played it in dressing rooms, hotels. We played it over at his house. We played it at my house. He always loved that song. I heard Adios this morning. And my wife and I both broke down and cried. Before we say goodbye to Jimmy Webb, there's one more funny story he told me after we'd finished our conversation. He said that Richard Harris never did get the title lyric to MacArthur Park right. No matter how many times he was corrected, Harris insisted on singing MacArthur's Park. Jimmy didn't mind. Harris made the song an enormous hit. Today's show is the last we're doing in the year of 2022. Tomorrow and Monday, we'll turn our time slot over to NPR while our team takes an extended New Year's holiday. But when we return next Tuesday, we'll get back to talking politics. The Georgia General Assembly will be preparing to start its session. Fonnie Willis's special grand jury is finishing up their work and we may soon know what they've discovered as they investigate possible criminal wrongdoing in the efforts to overturn Georgia's 2020 election. And believe it or not, it won't be long before candidates besides Donald Trump will begin declaring their intentions to run for president in 2024. But for right now, on behalf of the entire Political Rewind team, natalie mendenhall chase mcgee jake cook and victoria evans cash i want to send out our very best wishes for a happy new year